Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am really excited to have a local gal here today, Lauren Swift from Nevada City. She's a licensed or was a licensed psychotherapist working in the field of addictions, recovery, and dissociative disorders in Santa Fe, New Mexico. But she left psychotherapy because she found it too limiting, and she is focused on her work as a certified nonviolent communication trainer and coach for the past two decades, supporting couples, families, and groups in building mutual understanding and collaboration. And her new book that we're going to talk about today is the Earth Keeper's Handbook, Assuming Leadership in a New World. And it's written to support the awakening of our innate connectedness with all of life. Lauren, welcome to Conversations. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm really happy to be here. It's so good to see you. Nice to see you again, too. So let's talk about this book. This was quite an undertaking. What called you to write it, and how long did you work on this book to put it together? Well, I worked on it for probably a little over six years, and I was called to write it because I believe there are some very practical skills available a lot of people are talking about what needs to change, how the paradigm needs to shift, how we need to be compassionate, we need to be inclusive, we need to be tolerant. And I haven't heard very many people speaking about how to do that. Mm -hmm. So my book really delves into the very practical aspects of how can we really shift our internal experience from separation to connection, and from competition to cooperation, and how can we live from that place? Mm. And I love the practices you have in the book. It's just full of really engaging practices, which we'll hopefully talk about a little bit. But you, you mentioned the paradigm shift, and one of the things that a number of people have been talking about is the shift from the Newtonian, Cartesian, mechanistic, deterministic, whatever you want to call it, the 300-year-old model of seeing ourselves as objects in a world of objects to the new perspective. Actually, it's 100 years old, but the perspective, the quantum perspective of inseparability and that everything affects everything else. Talk a little bit about how that informed your work when you were writing this book. Yes, thank you. Well, I think it's really imperative for people to start really understanding and getting into their system the quantum view. We, we hear that word quantum kind of bantered about a lot lately, but the science behind it is 100 years old now. But we're still living with what we've been trained to think of as reality as we're separate from our bodies, we're separate from life, we're separate from spirit. Um, it's been deeply inculcated in us. And the fact is, and the new science, the new physics really, really reveals the truth that everything is connected, that everything is energetics, that in fact our consciousness is connected to the rest of the universe, that there is a universal consciousness and that we are part and parcel to it. Even quantum physicists themselves, even in Einstein's time, became aware that we live in a participatory universe where what we do and what we think and how we live affects everything else. And so we can actually, through the practices in the book, we can actually tap into that reality, tap into that experience of shifting the consciousness in order to shift our internal experience. Unfortunately, this paradigm is not only embedded in the language, which is bad enough, it's yeah. embedded in our institutions, in our economic system, yeah. in even social sciences. It's so deeply embedded. So how can people change both their internal and their external experiences of being separate? You know, we're in bodies. So 
Alan Watts used to call it our skin encapsulated ego. But that <laughs> keeps us separate, that sense that we're just in a body, that we're not connected with each other. So how do we shift? I know you say a lot of ways, but just overall, how do we shift into the other paradigm and actually begin to see ourselves as inseparable from the rest of the world? That's the key, isn't it? <laughs> That's the big shift, is how to internalize that and live that. And the book is divided into three sections, the inward journey, where the practices are really focused on unraveling those habits of thinking and being and responding to ourselves in the world so that we can find uh, a place of inner calm and spaciousness and compassion for ourselves to find the actual connection with our bodies and with our spirits inside uh, to anchor that sense of being connected with ourselves in our bodies and on the planet. And then part two is about how do we start transforming the habitual ways that we interact with each other in our relationships? How do we move through judgment, the habit of judgment and the habit of blaming? And how do we move into uh, connecting with other people and seeing that more than anything, we actually have a common ground. And I bring the consciousness that's invited through the nonviolent communication practices into the work um, to learn how to embody the consciousness that is that connects us through what I call the universal qualities of life. Mm -hmm. And these can be named as the deeper values that each one of us holds. And they are considered to be common to all humans. And it's the strategies by which we facilitate achieving those qualities, which are experiences that we want, that are the differences. The strategies are different from person, place, and time, but the common experience that we share relates is where we can find our common ground and just by naming these words. So the practices then help us find that commonality in, in relationships. And the third part is how do we do that in groups and how do we take our own internal inspiration out into the world? So it's a, it's a formula that the law in the big picture, the earth keepers handbook is a formula to shift that internal paradigm internally first and then in relationships and then out in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also that, in the group part, really stepping into a leadership role, I think is a big part of your book, which I really appreciated that being a leader in your own life and in your community. Yes. And I think, um, I think I'm using leadership in some of the traditional ways that we think of it, but also in a different way. And that is inviting people to really become the leader of their own life. And by doing that, it's an invitation to become free of, from the stranglehold of mainstream consensus thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And to become free of that, I think, is uh, an invitation to step into leadership, become a leader of your own life. You have to be free from the habits and the distractions that the consumerism wants us to stay stuck into and the, um, the artificial intelligence and the screen time wants us to stay sucked into it's very, it takes a lot of effort at this point in time to become free of the consensus thinking in order to be truly the leader of our own lives and to find out what true truly matters to us as an individual human being? What are the true values I really want to live by and want to bring into the world? And that is what the practices invite us into, is that type of freedom, which I think is a leadership role, and then how to step into that leadership role by being the leader, leader of our own lives in our interactions with others. Yeah, yeah the suck is huge with the fake news and the media and yes. uh, the phones and all of that. And you talk about the inner work. So let's, let's talk about the inner journey first. The first part of your book, finding that place in us that can connect and can have a integral experience. And 
yet so many people who are doing what most people would think of as inner work is they're trying to fix something. They're trying to fix what they consider is their brokenness. One of the things you really talk about there is self-acceptance and compassion and how that can lead to radical aliveness and a spiritual awakening instead of trying to push away those dissociated parts, those things that we don't want to look at. It's really an invitation to open to and love those parts. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. Thank you. I like, I like your description of that. Yeah. I think it's, it's a very fundamentally different approach from the polarized mechanistic approach that we apply a lot of our attempts to heal or, or grow or do spiritual practice are still informed by the polarized right-wrong paradigm that we've been steeped in and raised in that, that invites so much judgment and separation. So the approach that I'm inviting us into is to drop in and completely accept every single thing we find. And my approach as a psychotherapist and the work that I've done with facilitating other people, particularly people who really have dissociated aspects. We all have dissociated aspects to some part, but some people have really encapsulated dissociated parts that really need to find a way back to belong. And the way to do that is through compassion and acceptance and to understand that every single part that we have inside of us is there for a reason. It has served us in some way. It has served our survival and served our belonging in whatever situation we were raised in. And so I really invite people to honor those parts and how they have served. And they may be causing problems now in the present because they are limited. They were useful at a specific time in a specific place in specific situations, but they continue to repeat because our neurology holds these emotional memories with neuropeptides. So that's what a trigger is. When something in the present triggers an emotional response that we had when we were kids, then that emotion flares back up because it's held in the body. So I'm inviting us to drop through those layers of holding. And sometimes emotions do come up and are released during the process. And that releases us to come really into the fully into the present. Whereas if we were to attempt to make it wrong or bad or dissociate it further, it's really, really so much harder to come into full agreement and alignment with ourselves. Mm. Well said. My uh, primary teacher, Thomas Hubel, calls dissociated parts our childhood friends. And I love that yes. <laughs> way of <laughs> yes. describing them because it really is. And just to say to our listeners, when we're talking about a dissociated part, we're talking about something that happened at a place where we were threatened or couldn't handle the energy of that. And so we pushed energetically that part of our essence down. We all have some of that talk about the triggers. I like that because triggers are such a vital opportunity to heal and bring those, as you said, emotions up. We talk about getting triggered and we're trying to not get triggered. But in fact, the trigger is really the key to that part of healing. What are your thoughts around that? Yes, exactly. And that brings up the whole issue of uh, the relationships we choose. I think it's so fascinating that uh, by some intricate mechanism, we naturally draw to ourselves the people who will eventually mirror to us those parts of us that are still wounded and, and unhealed and not whole yet within ourselves. And that is what I call the gift of relationship. Um, those painful parts reveal their head and the more uh, intimate our relationship gets, the subtler and the subtler levels of those triggers or those wounded parts will reveal themselves, which is, you know, it's very unpleasant when it's happening, but it's, it's um, necessary to heal and become whole. And so the trigger is exactly that, an opportunity to look at ourselves further and take stock and 
shower ourselves with compassion and acceptance for that part of ourselves that helped us survive at that point in time in our childhood. One of the things I'd love for you to talk about, I think you articulated really well in the Earth Keepers Handbook, is how shame undermines our ability to give and receive love. So to give ourselves love or to give anyone else this ball of shame that so many people deal with, how can we identify and transcend this debilitating kind of shame that so many people carry and don't want to talk about, don't want to open up to, don't even want to look at? Yeah, it's a conundrum. It really is a conundrum because shame is ashamed of itself. So it, it's like a double whammy. It really hides itself from ourselves. Shame is another symptom of the patriarchal paradigm that we've all been raised in for the last, you know, four to 6,000 years, where we've been taught that there's some part of ourselves, our body is bad or wrong, our, our needs are bad or wrong, our desires are bad or wrong, and, and shame, like Brene Brown is so eloquent when she talks about shame and vulnerability, um, shame is a belief that I am wrong or I am bad as opposed to guilt where it is something that I did is bad or wrong. So shame is a very insidious self-concept, self-defeating notion to have, and it is challenging to overcome. And I really believe that the, the clearest and truest and most expedient way through is with self-acceptance and self-compassion. And um, shame will hide in little corners, and it's just a matter of continuing to drop down into, as I describe in, I think, the first chapter of the book, to develop a compassionate witness with oneself and to really have a deeply compassionate um, aspect of ourselves and observe ourself that can be with us with kindness and acceptance every step of the way and accept that, yeah, I'm human, I'm fallible. I did something that didn't work out and now I need to accept that and take the next step. It's so interesting that the things that we hold as shame that we're often afraid to speak about or, or communicate about, it reinforces that sense of separateness. It's interesting that when people are authentic about their inauthenticity, it actually <laughs> opens up and connects us. It's yes. the opposite of what we expect will happen. If people, not from an ego place, but from a heart place, are willing to share, mm -hmm. they find out that almost everybody else has something similar that yeah. they're hiding. Mm -hmm. And that leads to a break in belonging, though. Mm -hmm. All of these things, too. So I want to talk with you today about, about belonging and how we can cultivate a greater sense of belonging. It's interesting, just to say one more thing about that from my perspective, that oftentimes the belonging to a group or a sect or a tribe in some way is creating more separation because we other the people out there. So mm -hmm. when we look at belonging, I think we need to look at that whole spectrum of, yes, I belong to this group and those people are bad, those other people. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a conundrum. We all have, our, one of our core needs is to belong. Mm -hmm. I mean, it certainly makes sense evolutionarily because we really had to belong uh, when our survival depended upon it. We were part of a community. It's still yeah. done. We just think that this, this big system hides it. <laughs> that's right. And that's right. And that's part of, part of the work is shifting our perspective from belonging to a family or a small group or a, a tight group that is separate from other groups to really, really seeing at this point in time that we belong to the planet and that we all belong to the whole planet. And it is a big shift. And I think it's a challenging one to over, overcome. But when we start with the internal process of deeply finding our own sense of belongingness with ourself, 
and with our connection to the earth and to the planet. Um, it's amazing how important that grounding, you know, that fundamental piece of self-acceptance and self-belonging offers in terms of expanding our own willingness to accept our belonging to the whole planet and accept that we all belong in this together. It reminds me of that, that statement that Einstein made that people refer to a lot, which is we, we can't solve the problems that we have now with the same type of thinking that created those problems. And that's really what the Earth Keeper's Handbook is about, is, is a practical way to shift the way we think and the way we approach ourselves and one another because it is the point in time where we can no longer afford the luxury to assume that there is an us and a them yeah. Yeah. it's it's just too dangerous that we all belong in this together and that there are ways in the part two of the handbook that that explain and tell experientially how do we do that then how do we shift the way we communicate and the way we interact to know that we're all in this together and to accept our differences and to really allow the diversity that we all share to be a um, an advantage to all of yeah. us in the work i do in corporate world our our motto is finding unity and diversity yes and you know if you look at the natural world that's exactly how things work Mark Nepo has a wonderful thing we talked about on a show a while back, talking about the two tribes. There's the you're different, go away tribe. And then there's the you're different, come teach me tribe. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it's a, a great example of what needs to happen. Yes. Uh, but how do we overcome these patterns, these beliefs, these behaviors that keep reinforcing our sense of separation and the myth of separation? It's a, that is a, a piece of work that really demands um, a lot of self-awareness, um, self-introspection and awareness of how we habitually do have a sense of exclusion. And there's an, a, a line of separation between who we accept and who we don't, including with ourselves. And what values do we really want to live with? So there's a lot of dropping into the true authentic, life-serving values that matter to each one of us as a human being. And I truly believe that the highest, high percentage of human beings on the world probably share the same values. And I want to just say, if you just tuned in, I'm talking to Lauren Swift about her new book, The Earth Keeper's Handbook, Assuming Leadership in a New World. And one of the things that I love that I mentioned earlier is all the different practices. So let's go through some of the practices like the compassionate witness that helps us to step out of the prison of the inner critic and really deepen our own self-connection as well as connection to others. Yeah, well, there are two practices. Um, the first one is simply to take the time to still oneself and quiet the breath and start focusing inwardly. I know many of us are so focused outwardly in the outer world and on doing and getting things done. Um, many of us aren't taking the time just to sit quietly and focus inwardly, but a lot of the skills depend on the ability to, to stop, to take our attention inside, in the body, to feel what's going on, both kinesthetically and emotionally. And to develop a compassionate witness is simply to take the time to sit still, to breathe slowly, and to take the attention inside and to notice whatever is there, whatever you feel physically, whatever you feel emotionally, whatever thoughts come up, yeah. and to begin to accept them and notice them all with compassion, compassionate acceptance. Almost like you're watching a a screen or, you know, the clouds blowing by, just watching it and accepting it all and letting yourself experience it without um, a judgment mm -hmm. or trying to push it away. And that's a practice that is the foundation of the rest of them. Right, right. I just um, 
that whole thing about witness as i'm i'm looking at the issue of witness as people know who listen to the show i have a lot of meditation people on and mm -hmm. i'm a big proponent of meditation and uh, one of the things about becoming a witness is you recognize that you're not those things and that's yeah. the first freeing part really of stepping into oh wait a minute if who's watching what's happening here if if i'm not that then i'm something other than that and mm -hmm. that is a real step into freedom and then mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier values and talk about your uh, value-based practice for embodying the universal qualities of life so the values that is actually the key the key practice for the whole book my, in my understanding um, and experience and the key practice for shifting are the paradigm actually internally and then in how we interact in the world and it, i have taken it from my practice with the nonviolent communication work and created a way to rather than learning a template of how to speak with nonviolent communication to purely drop into the consciousness nonviolent communication is meant to be a map to the heart and there's a way to get to the consciousness of the heart directly and to speak from there and then you can throw away the template and it's about dropping in and finding out what what is it that truly matters to you in the world what are the experiences that that you most highly value and i ask people to ask themselves the question if everything in the world or in my life were exactly as i would most love it to be what are the words that would describe that and then naturally people start spouting out these very common universal qualities of life which in nonviolent communi communication they call the universal human needs and i call them qualities of life because i consider them an energetic qualities that are always flowing and always available they're part of the uh the universe as i think of it in terms of the quantum field they're part of the field and with our consciousness, we could pull in any aspect of the field at any time with intention. So I teach people to the embodiment uh, of the quality of life by choosing. Let's say you want compassion or generosity or kindness or any other quality of life that matters to you. And it's a matter of simply slowing the breath so that your autonomic nervous system has the experience of safety slowing the breath and then uh, bringing in the let's say it's uh, gratitude that we want to experience sometimes it's helpful to have a cue which would be to remember a point in time when you were experiencing gratitude or compassion or whatever it is when you remember that experience and then bring that into your body and then you let go of the experience and you have the energetic quality of generosity living in you and it becomes a field of energy that really shifts your internal experience very uh, potently and then there's an expanded version of that as we move through the book um, that practice is used in almost every part and then we can expand it to actually start the embodiment can be beyond ourselves and that embodiment can also invite us to into tapping into our deep intuition and other aspects of the field that are available to us when we slow and calm and set a clear intention mm. so important I, I that's why this became the uh, book of the month in our newsletter is because <laughs> it's an embodied approach and that's what we teaches embodied mysticism whatever you want to mm -hmm. call it but it's it's so important and one of the things after teaching the five rhythms for 25 years mm -hmm. that i find is that most people are not in their body fully mm -hmm. uh, most people are often not in their emotions mm -hmm. so one of the things that needs to happen for people often they're very in their mind but mm -hmm. there's no coherence no alignment between the mind the body and the emotions 
And that's such an important thing at this time of huge change. Talk about why it's important to be in our body and our emotions and find congruency in them in order to do this work. My, the reason I call it the Earth Keeper's Handbook, and then it, it's all about the inner work, <laughs> a lot of it, is because to me, the focus is that is the earth. I mean, to, to begin to experience ourselves as not separate from the earth. Um, the Heart Math Institute has done lots of science and they have lots of wonderful um, practices on slowing the heart rate and slowing the breath and creating a coherent field within our body. And that 0.1 hertz of, of coherence that when our heart and brain are connected that way through our intention and the breath, which is the same thing that happens in the embodiment of the quality of life practice, then we're also connected with the magnetic resonance of the earth itself. Mm-hmm. So it's about feeling that level of belongingness when we feel that resonance of the hertz energetically inside ourselves and with the earth, it's amazingly empowering. It's clear, it's simple, it's unfettered with mind chatter, and it is empowering because it clears the mind. When we come clearly down into the body, onto the earth, Um, we can use our resources so much more um, meaningfully and and potently, I think. So it's really about finding our belonging again. And that's what moving from separation to connection is about. It seems almost everything in our normal daily lives nowadays is taking us out of connection with our bodies and into our heads and out of Um, where our true power is. And that's, again, why I call it leadership. Because it really takes a person who wants to be truly the leader of their own lives to bring their focus back inside, into the body, onto the planet. And that's where our true passions lie also. I think it's where our true creativity lies. And when we can quiet the chatter down and find that energetic alignment with ourselves, we have access to passion and creativity and vitality and the ability to see one another in that light so that we can collaborate. And the point of the book is to find those places together so that we can do the work more expediently that needs to be done right now that has a lot to do with the earth itself. Yeah, brilliant. Well, it also is the foundation for the most important quality of leadership, which is presence. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you talk about the, my, the marriage of science and mysticism. Mm-hmm. So talk about that in relationship to developing a deeper presence. Hmm. I had a, um, one of my most recent spiritual teachers was named Marat Yegan. He was a a Sufi elder from the Caucasus Mountains, and he lived in British Columbia. And he was the first one that I heard the term that we'd live in uh, the era of the marriage of science and mysticism, even though I had read about it in the 80s from a Buddhist practitioner. It's a fascinating thing because this is what quantum physics is telling us, that the field, like Bruce Lipton says, the field is a sea of energetics that, it, that affects, that invisibly affects life. And then he said also that, well, that's the definition of spirit, an invisible energetic field that affects life. It's, that's why I think it's so important to understand at least some aspect of, the, of quantum physics at this point to, because it supports the sense that we are spiritual beings we are energetic beings in in what we call physical bodies and um, it's the really it's the energetics that create our reality and our consciousness affects our energetics so this leadership is about finding our way to tap into intentional 
directing of our energetics and our consciousness so that we can actually have the internal experiences we want, but also then affect the outer circumstances in that positive way to bring the values that we want and the world that we want back to the planet. Beautiful. Well said. Yeah. The, you know, the key distinctions that are being taken from quantum quantum physicists, many of them will say, well, that's only on the micro level, but (laughs) actually, you know, what's being revealed is what the mystics have said for millennia. You know, it's, uh, the inseparability of everything, the non-locality that something uh, in one place can affect something on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the the things I think that's necessary looking at it from that kind of quantum perspective is the embracing uncertainty because one of the things that people struggle with to get back to the individual growth is this Wanting to do it right, as you said, wanting to, you know, looking at it from a good, bad, or how to avoid domination or dominate, all of those, that kind of dualism, when we look at it from we need to embrace uncertainty, it, it gets a lot of suffering out of the way because if you're looking at there's, there's an objective world, which is a certain world out there that I'm trying to match, you'll always come up short of it. But if it's, if it's a, a, a subjective and you're open to embracing uncertainty, that really goes a long way for increasing our presence and our ability to connect with the, the world and other people and other communities. Mm-hmm. Talk about that, that sense of always trying to get it right and the kind of suffering and how we can really open by embracing uncertainty in our lives. Yeah, and I think that that the practices invite us into a deeper connection with ourselves, which gives us a deeper trust in ourselves and help us trust our ability to navigate from our heart with care. I think that's a lot of the thing that makes communicating with people challenging is that we don't trust that we know how to hold both of us with care at the same time when there's disagreement. That's the whole thing about the way most people have a conversation, particularly if there's a disagreement, is they start out believing they need to make a case in order to get the outcome that they want in the conversation. Therefore, there's actual no meeting. There's no interaction. There's no understanding. There's no actual meeting. And so there's no creativity. So the uncertainty principle, uh, I I use that in the book from quantum physics to support the notion that we can, as a matter of fact, it's more realistic to come into a dialogue not knowing the outcome because you don't know the outcome until the outcome, until we're there. And so there's a lot of room for expansiveness and creativity and mutual understanding and empathy and empathetic presence with one another. And it becomes such an adventure. It's so much more interesting to step into a conversation as it's going to be an adventure, particularly if we don't get along or we, we don't see eye to eye, because then we get to learn so much more. And then when we don't, when we trust that the outcome is uncertain until we actually get there, other options can come in that neither one of us ever even considered before that are so much better than what one of us might have wanted or expected the outcome to be in the first place. So great, because it's a co-creation anyway. It's a co-creation anyway. You can either create separation and anxiety and hatred, or you can just create love and be connected. Yes, it's a shift. It's a, it's a choice to shift that way. And it is uh, feel vulnerable to do that. But like you said earlier, the amazing thing is that when I show up with my open heartedness and my vulnerability and my authenticity and my transparency, it really invites other people to do the same. And that's where the deep richness, I mean, our, it's really our human treasure trove, I, I think of it, the vulnerability that's where we connect, that's where we meet, that's where we find joy, that's where creativity is, that's where 
our greatest meaning comes really from that place. And that's, that's the uncertainty. So in, in that, one of the things you talk about is how to develop the courage and capacity to uh, practice the traits of authenticity and vulnerability. Talk mm-hmm. about your, your way of um, easing ourselves into <laughs> that practice, so to speak. Well, it is an ease. And, yeah. I, and I share that, um, what was it? I'd say 18 years ago when I first started uh, studying nonviolent communication, that really freaked me out. I have to say the prospect of leading with my true feelings or my heart because I had spent my life protecting myself, as many of us have. Um, so it is a tender um, step-by-step process of going inside. And it really, again, starts with self-acceptance and with connecting to ourselves inwardly. So the steps are to become aware of ourselves on the inward uh, landscape, to know what we're feeling emotionally and kinesthetically and what quality of life we're seeking in any given situation. That in itself is so empowering. But as we do that and we trust, we begin to trust that when we share ourselves transparently with other people and we're received, it becomes easier and easier. And we find that the, the so much richness, mm. so much greater richness in the connections that develop when we meet each other in that, what we call vulnerable way. And I call it uh, transparent or authentic because if we're choosing it and we trust that we can navigate what shows up when we share ourselves, it's, mm. it's not necessarily vulnerable but it's open-hearted. Well, one of the things that um, is really important in these changing times and, and the things that are coming down the pike towards us is the question of how to be resilient in times of great change. And you have this practice of the coordinates. Talk about that and resiliency. Yeah. Well, I, I call it our um, personal internal coordinates. And I agree, resiliency is really key from here on out. I mean, the, the anxiety I think many of us feel, whether we're conscious of, conscious of it or not, is so apparent, particularly people who are somewhat empathic. We're feeling the tension and the anxiety on the planet in our nervous systems, and it's really going to call for great resiliency on so many fronts which is why community also and coming home to tribe, I think is so important. Um, But the resiliency again, starts inside with knowing ourselves and what I call the coordinates of presence um, are being able to take our focus inside. And that's a habit to create whenever we're triggered or whenever we're talking with someone is to take our attention inside and be able to find what am I feeling physically? What emotion is going on? What quality of life am I seeking or wanting to experience? And being able to name that gives us a ballast, an internal ballast to move from, from moment to moment, because it's always changing. But we can check in at any moment and find that and name it. So I might check in and say, well, I'm feeling a little anxiety. I'm feeling a little anxious. And I feel that in my body as a little tightness in my chest or butterflies in my stomach. And that's because I want to feel uh, competent and confident right in this moment. I want to be clear. I want to be able to communicate clearly. So just knowing that about ourselves then gives us the opportunity to choose how to show up, how to ask for what we need or um, choose what we want to share with other people and basically where we are. It's an empowering state, I think. Mm -hmm. And and I think that has a lot to do with being resilient and being able to navigate. There's so many changes that we're all navigating now. And don't you know what you just said, that inner checking in, when it's on the speaker, the loudspeaker out there, 
<laughs> how absolutely empowering and disarming and connecting that is when you not only look and see that, but share it with somebody else. Yes. Yeah. And that's step one. Yeah. But it's really a solid, it's a cornerstone, really powerful. Another cornerstone, of course, is gratitude. And you call it in your book, The Gateway to Abundance. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, because when I say that, I can hear the listeners listening to The Secret or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we won't go there. Uh, but also that it dispels greed. So I, lo I love the way you balanced those two together when you talk about gratitude. Uh, share your thoughts on that, please. Well, I have um, been doing a practice. I learned from actually the sound healer, the sound technician, Tom Kenyon. And um, he brings sounds in and the focus is on embodying gratitude. And it's made a huge shift. The amazing... Um, thing about gratitude, and I also learned about gratitude and abundance from uh, that Sufi teacher, Marat Yagan, is when we are grateful, when we actually experience gratitude for something that's coming into our lives, that's when we can actually receive it. And I think this hyper-consumerism, this hyper-focus on the new iPhone or the new this, or the new that that we have to have, takes us actually away from abundance. Mm -hmm. It's a really fascinating conundrum because when we truly receive something, when we truly receive, and I think this is what blessings our food is about or blessing the things that we have, the things that are nurturing us, when we bless it and we receive it gratefully, then we really receive it. And to me, that is, that is the inception of abundance. And when we can truly receive what we have in all humility, we are living abundantly. I have, I, I just have found that to be completely true. It's an internal experience. And when we receive the simplest thing with gratitude and abundance, energetically, there is no longer a need for more. Therefore, it dispels greed because we don't have to have the next thing or the more thing or the, the newest thing because we're completely satisfied with what we have. And it does take the practice of gratitude to have that experience. So many people struggle with receiving people who are great givers out there mm -hmm. saving the world and mm -hmm. doing all kinds of things. And yet mm -hmm. it's a dishonoring really of the giver yes. to not be able to receive, but we don't recognize we go, Oh no, no, that's okay. Yes. Yes. And I speak to that in um, one of the chapters, I guess it's the chapter on gratitude of the importance of receiving there's a section titled it's um, as important to receive as it is to give because that completes the circle. And it's the false premise that we don't need each other, that somehow we're independent. It's another one of the false premises from the Cartesian model that we're separate that, and it's almost a false humility, a false arrogance to say, no, 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 I don't need that. Don't put yourself out. It's, the opposite is true. We do need each other. We absolutely need each other. We absolutely need help from one another. We rely on each other. So it's really, if we don't do it out of choice right now, consciously create our communities and our, where we do share and support each other, it's going to happen to us externally. Yep. We're going to be forced to, rely on each other and to come together and to trust each other, we might as well get started and do it purposefully. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that was the most impactful for me was I actually did the processes in your book when I read oh, I do them. Yeah. And I happened to be on a 10 day uh, fast when I was doing it and I did your grief practice, which I, I got enormous value on. I, I totally got into it. I'm, uh, and it was funny. We had a, 
a dinner the other night, a grief and praise dinner based on uh, Martine Prechtel's work. Oh, nice. Uh, and it was very interesting with about 20 of us mm. working with that. But that, that was an enormously powerful experience for me. Talk about the importance of grieving. You know, I look at the number of species that are lost every day and the impact on the earth and, you know, just the senseless war and genocide that's going on. And it's really important to move through that, not to wallow in it, but to move through it and experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It. So can you share a little bit about that process? And Yeah. Well, you know, it reminds me of Joanna Macy's The Work, where she is very aware of that too, the need to express our feelings. And, and I'm in a program right now called a Buddhist eco-chaplaincy program, where that is a lot of the focus. How do we attend to the amount of grief? going on on the planet and it's going to be exacerbated as we go. Um, emotions in general, we must feel in order to stay current with ourselves, to stay vibrant and alive and to have the resources of ourselves available to us. Grief in particular, every single change we go through, every single loss we have, large or small, if we don't feel it, it does become like a dam inside of ourselves holding a weight that we carry with us and it becomes heavier and heavier and heavier to allow ourselves. It's a grace, you know, the grace and the opportunity to shed our tears and particularly together to shed tears together or alone. It's so freeing. It's so revitalizing. It reminds me of uh, when a river floods, you know, it brings the nutrients up onto the soil. Grieving allows that type of nourishing our, of ourselves mm. um, and coming back to current. It really keeps us present. Yes. And unfortunately, I need to be present of the time and we're out <laughs> of time, Lauren Swift, but I just want to thank you for the Earth Keepers handbook and for people who uh, don't get my newsletter you can go to welloflight.com and subscribe to the newsletter and also get a package of mindfulness uh, instructions mm -hmm. and uh, for more with lauren swift you go to laurenswift.com and you can find out more there and it's just i'm so grateful to you for taking the time to be with us on conversations and uh, i hope everyone gets a copy of your book and thank you so much read it, but practices it <laughs> thank you really enjoyed being with you likewise much love to you love to you Bye. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.